0: You are inside the war room once again, Ryan Ray here as always, joined by the legend herself, Dr. <laughs> Ellen Wald. Dr. Wald, you are not a guest today. You are sitting co-host. It's good to have you. How are you doing?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to co-host this podcast,
0: legendary podcast. Legendary, at least in my mind. You were a guest, I'm trying to look it up, um, like episode 15, I believe. So we'll link to that in the show notes, your appearance talking about the Middle East but you are on here today because we have on as the listeners know uh, Jeremy Friedman with his new book and I thought what better way to talk about this topic than having the good doctor herself on so Ellen obviously we're talking about um, right for revolution socialism communism we've already recorded this interview so what are kind of some of your takeaways from the interview with uh, Jeremy Friedman
1: yeah, I thought it was it was super interesting. Um, note to the to the listeners: Jeremy and I kind of go way back. Uh, I I knew him when he was just starting out in grad school, and and these uh, 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 research topics were just barely being form formulated. So it's really cool to be able to kind of come in and read the the fruition of, of these efforts. And um, some, of, some of the really interesting points, I, I think, are um, particularly, at least one of the things that, that I found really interesting was the way that um, religion and, and as these socialists and, and communists kind of encountered these third world cultures where religion and religious structures were so incredibly ingrained in, in the population, how they had to kind of adapt their um, perceptions of religion and, and the way that that they, you know, maybe took what they learned in say Indonesia and then applied it differently in Iran or they didn't learn the right lessons from Chile with, with Iran. And um, I think that it's a really interesting thing. And, and um, you know, another, another good point was also with, like how contemporary some of this stuff is in these countries, you know, for many of us, like the Cold War has been over for a long time and, and you know communism has been done like kind of been there done that now there is kind of this resurgence of like people talking about socialism now. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, so you can't put that aside but for a lot of these countries like like Indonesia and Iran, and you know, Chile and Angola, like, this was not that long ago. And these ideas and these things and these the, the people who are involved are still very much part of, of the political scene. And uh, that's a really important point, I think, to keep in mind, especially when you're considering foreign policy today.
0: Yeah. And one thing I thought about um, when he was talking about that was imagine if we lived in you know 1776, 1777, the debates our country would be having about policy uh, foreign relations, all this stuff. But we're we're so far removed from that kind of a big political shift that for us, like you say, it's it's complex where these countries are trying to figure out where they're gonna go next or are they gonna say what they're doing. And so it is a lot more um a lot more relevant discussion there. And we're over here like, guys, come on. You're and Dr. Wall's on episode twenty-three, so we'll link to that as well. Um the other thing that you mentioned that that came up a little bit, um, and I, I didn't bring this up, but I did hear a historian, I think not uh, not historian, but someone the other day talking about Um, the role of religion from the christian standpoint and how catholic Mm -hmm. countries have very much state type influence where protestant countries like the u.s for instance doesn't and so there's kind of this dynamic to where um, even with christianity that you see in certain you know if it's a catholic uh, a catholic country um, a lot of church state overlap there and if it's a protestant nation you don't So you can see that in different forms throughout the world so okay Um, any final thoughts before we get to uh, dr friedman
1: Yeah, I um, really encourage the listeners to take a look at his book. If, if, you know, socialism and and socialist revolutions kind of in the third world, I guess now we call it the developing world. And then now they call it the global south, but whatever term floats (laughs) your boat, if you're, if you're interested in how socialism has, has impacted these, these countries, I would definitely check out, check out his book. It's, it's pretty, pretty easy to read too.
0: Yep. Check out. Yes. Check out his book for sure. Um, And, we will link to that in the show notes. The book is called Right for Revolution. He's also on episode 66. I'll link to that as well. You can go check that out. And final thing I, sh- I should say: this is um, a stark warning for those. Um, he proved me wrong on a point theoretically. I'm not I'm not willing to concede yet, but for the listeners of this podcast, you're not used to hearing that, and so I made a concession in the podcast to be a good sport. So um, uh, so take that. Don't don't like wreck listening to this in your cars. So that without uh, further ado, here is Jeremy Friedman. Well, Jeremy, it is good to get you back on the show once again. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How about you?
0: You know, well, I was about to ask you about the weather because it is cold down here. We're recording this uh, late January. It's like 17 degrees in Texas,
2: so it's it's too cold for us. According to my computer, it's 17 degrees in Boston right now. So <laughs>
0: there you go. Uh, okay, it's warmed up. It's, it was 17 this morning when I took the kids to school. It's 36 right now, so it's a ball. You know, we're... We're going to take the jackets off here in a second. But no, tomorrow, I think it's like 19 in the morning. So it's uh, it's nice and cool here in the great state of Texas. Okay. So last time, I think we teased your new book, uh, which came out on January 4th, right before Revolution. Okay. So let's kind of maybe backtrack on what was the impetus for this project. Um, and then uh, let me kind of recap a little bit about your last book as well.
2: Okay. So you're just asking about the impetus for this project specifically. Yes. Um, I think the the major impetus was just that I think the way socialism has been discussed is as if it was this sort of, you know, aberrational program of the late 19th, early 20th century, which got instantiated in this, you know, bizarre situation in the Soviet Union um, and then Maoist China. Um, and in that sense, you know, we crystallize into this sort of murderous orthodoxy, um, which takes it kind of out of, the, the, both the discourse and the experience of most people in the West. Um, and so what I try to do with this book um, is really to show how there's a global conversation around socialism that's evolving. Um, it evolved throughout the Cold War. Um, and that the divisions that, you know, we might imagine on the left between sort of Stalinists, you know, Marxist, communists, um, socialists, social Democrats, democratic socialists, are not in practice um, as significant as they might be in theory. Um, and so that there really is sort of a, you know, a global conversation around socialism in which you know, there's a process of trial and error, and in which um, there's sort of a spectrum really, um, as opposed to kind of distinct silos.
0: One of the things you said in our last interview, and I'm, I'm trying to find it here, I wrote it down, it was such a good quote, is you defined socialism. You said we should use this definition, and I can't I can't find it, but maybe redefine.
2: Uh, I, so it's again, it's not my definition. I think you're, the phrase you're talking about is that socialism means the social control of the means of production.
0: Right, but you but you use a new definition. Uh-huh, What's that?
2: I said it's not my definition.
0: No, no, not that one. But you have a you have a new way that you formulated it. You said we should think about socialism this way.
2: Um, that I'm not sure exactly what you're asking about.
0: Yeah, it was it had to do with how political pressure um, ties into. Um, the means of production today.
2: Well, I think my point was simply that you know when you think about what social control of the means of production means, um, you know it was interpreted in the Stalinist USSR to mean state state ownership of the means of production. Um, but social control does not have to mean state ownership, um, and a lot of the diagnoses of the failure of the Soviet economy, um, especially you know by the late 1970s, 1980s, people like Janos Kornai in Hungary and such, sort of diagnosed systemic failures and the idea of state ownership, which didn't necessarily mean that you couldn't exercise social control through other ways. So I think a lot of what contemporary socialism is about is looking for ways for the political system to structure the incentives for business um, so that business will answer to social imperatives without the state having to actually run the businesses themselves. Yeah, that's how you formulate it. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting um a definition and i think it's it it bears a lot on on what's going on today i um i really enjoyed this um this new this new book um, particularly um the part about Iran because uh, i had never really looked at Iran from the perspective or at least saw the dialogue that was going on between Iranian uh socialists and the um you know, Common turn and, and the the socialists in in the USSR and and kind of seen how they were reformulating their ideas in in contrast. So that that chapter was extremely interesting, and I, I definitely have some questions about it. So um, hopefully we can get to that a little later. So
0: one of the questions I have is um, uh, to the book here is that you you have a handful of countries. I mentioned Iran. Um, you you have other countries, Angola. You have these countries that you that you you, you talk about. Um, For the reader's perspective, should we think that this is um, pretty all-encompassing for your thesis, or are there other countries you go, you know what, I just didn't have the time to kind of dig in here, but these would also kind of fit in the same model?
2: Well, so I talk about this in the introduction, that, you know, this story, I mean, I I could have done India, I could have done Egypt, I could have done Guinea, I could have done Nicaragua, I could have done so many other countries, um, Afghanistan, Mali, um, and that's precisely the point. Um, that this is a story which was global in nature and really touched just about every single country um, in what was then called the third world um, at the time. Um, And so that's why, you know, I'm not picking a handful of outliers. Um, I'm picking countries that were attending representative because, and and by the way, some of the reviews were like, I wish there had been a chapter on Nicaragua. I wish there had been a chapter on Ghana. I wish, you know, and if I had an infinite amount of time and Harvard University Press allowed me to write a much longer book you know that might have been possible but you know shorter books hopefully sell better um so so that was a consideration
1: um darn it capitalism again
2: (laughs) well yes um but that i mean that's that's part of the point is that every case is different but i pick these cases for reasons that i think make them representative um, and the key really is that this is a global story which touches almost every country um, and that makes it more significant I think.
0: Yeah so how do you go about ranking them in priority just when, when you're when you're doing research I'm always fascinated on books like this you you have the product that we get to read but then you also have this this process of okay you have this thesis and then how do you go about ranking them and determining um, which ones that you think in, are, are the most important and which ones you cut out obviously there's practical limitations that you mentioned, but there's There's also other other factors that you have to consider to uh, the ones that make the cut.
2: Well, I think there are a number of considerations. I mean, one consideration certainly is trying to pick countries which, you know, for however brief a period of time kind of made it to the center of international attention. So there was a brief period of time when, you know, eyes of the world were on Allende's Chile. There was, you know, a period in late 75, early 76, when everybody was concentrated on Angola, for example. So the idea that you know, for a brief period of time, they captured the world's imagination. Um, I think that's one factor. Um, a second factor was looking for countries that illustrated the different sorts of problems. So, on the one hand, you know, agricultural economies, um, post-colonial societies, um, countries where religion played a major role in politics, countries where um, there was wrestling with the idea of uh, democratic constitutionalism. Um, And so picking a good selection of countries in which, you know, these sorts of representative issues really came to the fore, I think, was a second consideration. Um, And a third was trying to diversify across the Cold War geographically and chronologically. So there's two countries in Asia, two in Africa, one in Latin America that sort of, you know, chronologically cover from the late 40s to the mid-1980s, and so covers both the geographic and chronological span of the Cold War.
1: Oh yeah, so I'd, I'd love to, to talk more about Iran in, in particular, simply because that's that happens to be the subject I know the most about. Um, and I, I really found the the chapter on this very illuminating. Um, I liked, uh, first of all, I really liked that you mentioned um, Ali Shariati because uh, I think he often gets overlooked by a lot of, of Western scholars and his work was really extremely seminal to, to the um to the revolution in general and also to kind of developing the idea the, the revolutionary uh Shiism ideology that kind of in a sense maybe I, I don't know I always saw it as as kind of maybe he drew inspiration in some ways from, from socialist elements um but was was really a, a key reinterpretation of of religion in a way that made it made Shiism revolutionary as opposed to kind of this culture of like warning their you know martyrdom, but um, so I was kind of wondering what. Um, but of course, he died even before the, the revolution happened, uh, and there's always this sense of well, what what would have happened had he you know been had he not died. Um, but uh, this this quote kind of stuck out at me, and and I don't, as a general rule, love counterfactual historical arguments, but since it is in the book, I'm I'm going to ask it. And so, have um, this quote where? Um, A uh, Mosin Milani argues, he says, quote, had the Tudeh chosen a different path, the Tudeh being the Iranian kind of Marxist political party, uh, the fundamentalist would have probably emerged victorious albeit after more hardship and more compromises with the moderate elements, which could have accelerated the revolution's drive toward radicalism. And I was kind of wondering what you, you think of this in terms of you know what, what would have happened or could there have been a different path at any one point that might have Led to maybe Khomeini's uh, ideology and, uh, and and regime having maybe less of a, a grip. Was there really anything that the the deb Party say could could have done to maybe change so the course of
2: the that you revolution? Me, sorry, um, it's interesting that you asked not just about a counterfactual, but about a counterfactual, which is really somebody else's counterfactual, <laughs> um, and that it's mostly Milani's quote. Um, so I I, I don't want to you know I certainly don't want to put thoughts in his head. Um, but I would say that I think you know, the most likely sort of alternative scenario would have been one in which um, there would have been more of a role for people like you know, Bazargan to you know, still have some role in power in which um, and this would have had you know, support if the Tudé had been willing perhaps to ally with you know, not just the Fed Aiyan, and the Mujahideen, mm-hmm. people like you know Ayatollah Shariat, Madari, um, and you know so there, there was you know the potential for kind of this coalition really across the political spectrum. Um, that you know if they would have valued more kind of you know what what they referred to at the time as you know bourgeois democracy, um, that it would have left more room instead of you know the, the sort of the second draft of the constitution which got approved by the Assembly of Experts in, in, in August of seventy nine. Um, the first draft was was you know more you know bourgeois democratic in that sense, but that's I mean that's at the core of what I'm arguing in the chapter because the whole point is the two dead did not value bourgeois democracy um, on its own terms. It actually saw bourgeois democracy as reactionary and a potential you know opening for kind of you know Trojan horse for American influence, um, precisely because of the analogy they were drawing to Chile and you know what had happened to to the democratic by mm-hmm. um, and that's so interesting. Yeah, they kind of drew the
1: wrong the wrong lesson. Um, Interesting factoid, Bazargan was actually appointed the head of the Iranian National Oil Company when it was first formed in the 50s. So he, uh, you know, have, have to throw in a little little oil fact there. Um, yeah, and then uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see who comes up in this chapter because Mir um, uh, Hossein Mosavi ap- uh, uh, appears. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, he was, you um, you know, he was elected prime minister and then later re-emerges as this like reformist figure, um, you know, and, and is now still under house arrest. Um, so I'm kind of wondering how, maybe I, I know you kind of stopped at, you know, the revolution and and the immediate aftermath, but um, one of the, the quotes I also really liked, I, I wrote down that, that you, you argue that this kind of conglomeration of Islamism and socialism in Iran Ended up creating the state in which, and I'm, I'm quoting in from your from your uh, writing. Now, the regime is still trying to determine the nature of its own revolution in both its economic structure and its international position. And I was wondering if you could comment a little more on, um, you know, how that's playing out today.
2: Well, I mean, I think how it's playing out today. It's interesting; it almost changes, you know, kind of. Presidency to presidency, you know, there'd be one answer under Ahmadinejad, there'd be a different answer under Rouhani, you know, we're still seeing how things are evolving under, under Raisi. Um, I think one thing's interesting about Iran, of course, is that, you know, you mentioned Mousavi, and he's not the only one. There are a number of figures who were prominent at the time of the revolution who are still, you know, alive and active in Iranian politics today, you know, not least Khamenei himself. Um, but you know it's it's been 43 years now, um, but some of these people are still active, and and some people like Musabi, I mean you can see looking at him, You look at you know Rafsanjani died relatively recently, but you know he was prominent for a very long period of time as well. Um, and you look at their trajectories, and a lot of you know I think you can learn from them is sort of the original ideals that a lot of young people had at the time of the revolution, how they felt they were betrayed by later uh, manifestations of the Iranian regime, and how you know in certain ways. It's almost like, you know, I, I obviously my, my home field is Soviet history. And so I always like to go back to Soviet history. Um, and I love the analogy between the revolutions. You know, if, if you think about, you know, what if, um, you know, after Stalin had died, he hadn't killed all the old Bolsheviks in 37 and 38, and, you know, Bukharin had still been there and Trotsky had still been around. And, you know, they were there to sort of debate where to take the revolution now instead of it being in the hands of someone like Khrushchev. You know, if the original people who knew Lenin had, had been around, you know, what would they have done differently? Um, And so, you know, these people not only, you know, outlasted Khomeini, but some of them might outlast Khomeini. Um, And I think, you know, so, so I think some of them are still trying to reconcile the, the early ideals they had with the revolution um, with where it currently is. Um, And there's obviously at least, at least two different versions of what they think the revolution is supposed to be. So there's still a very, you know, um, pasta on revolutionary guards based Kind of bring the revolution to the rest of the region, um, you know, kind of militant foreign policy, which was there in the very beginning. Um, and there's there's a version of that. There's another version of that, which always saw the revolution, I think, as being about greater democracy and you know raising living standards inside Iran. Um, and that, to a certain degree, was a large part of the push behind you know Rouhani's presidency and Rouhani's election. Um, and I don't think those are people who saw themselves as counter revolutionaries. Those are people who saw themselves fulfilling the original promise of the revolution. So I think, in that sense, you know, they're still kind of the revolution was contested at the time in terms of what it meant, and it's still being contested at the highest levels of the Iranian regime. And it, it reflects the sort of almost schizophrenia of the Iranian leadership.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting how, you know, you could even see that playing out before, um, you know, before the, the new, um, Sanctions from the Trump administration on oil—you could see that actually kind of playing out in the the oil sphere because you had this, you know, the, the sanctions are relaxed and there's a potential to grow Iranian oil production, and you have Iran wanting to, uh, or you have some people at least, uh, most notably um, uh, the um, the Iranian oil minister. minister um, who really wanted to bring in outside expertise to help develop a lot of the Iranian oil assets that had been kind of languishing uh, with the recognition that they really did need this kind of expertise. And he just kept running up against this brick wall of this revolutionary ideology that even goes back farther um, where with such incredible um, uh, opposition to any kind of foreign ownership of any natural resource assets. And he's like, look, we've got to make these contracts, you know, viable and, 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 and you know, interesting for these companies. We've got to make the contracts good because otherwise they're not going to be interested in in taking this risk and yeah and so they they just like kept deli- they were supposed to be these um you know these these conventions and they just kept delaying and delaying and delaying because the parliament kept saying no we don't we're not going to allow you to do this contract because it's too much you know foreign ownership and eventually it just dragged on and on and on and then you have a new president and then you had the um you know the, the the sanctions and it just all all fell apart but it's still like you, you're like look these are <laughs> these are business contracts and they're coming up ahead again against this revolutionary ideology which is so incredibly anti anti-imperialist in a sense that like know the idea that bp would want to invest is like oh my god no how could we ever go there because of what happened in the 1950s
2: and i think what you're saying is you know exactly gets to the heart of i think what i'm trying to do in this book which is you know show precisely how these you know ideological debates around the nature of what it means to be socialist and anti-capitalist are still very much alive um and to draw some connections from what you're saying um, you know, this position is not as vocal in Iran now as it once was, but I mentioned in the chapter, the first president of the Islamic Republic, right, Abu Hassan Bani Sabda, yeah. in his idea of what, you know, the economy was supposed to be, he wanted to get rid of oil totally, because he thought, right, that oil made Iran dependent on the outside world, and Iran should focus on agriculture, and just get rid of the oil industry, because it should be, you know, self-sufficient. And that was his idea of what a revolutionary <laughs> economy would look like, um, especially because also, you know, oil... Not only is it, it's it's you know environmentally dirty, but enriches some to you know to, and doesn't help masses and such. And then you take that and so connecting to the Tanzania chapter. So one of the one of the interesting um, stories of the Tanzania chapter. And Tanzania does not have oil, does not have natural resources in scale of like Iran does at all. Um, but there's a debate. You know the Chinese offered to build a farm implements factory in Tanzania in the 60s. You know to build things like you know machetes domestically. For farmers <laughs> importing from the UK. Um, and there's this debate between the Tanzanians. They both agree that you know, the goal is self-reliance, right? Which is a very typical sort of you know anti-imperialist goal for this kind of revolution, which you know reflects the same thing that Bonnie Soder is talking about in Iran. Um, but self-reliance means different things to the Tanzanians and to the Chinese. Right? So to the Tanzanians it means, well, of course, you know, if we're gonna be self-reliant, that means the production has to be Cheaper than what we're buying, you know, from abroad, and maybe we can, you know, it'll be it'll it'll be self-sustaining financially, and maybe we can even export it to Uganda and Kenya and such, replace their exports from the UK. And the Chinese said, no, 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 no. it doesn't matter if it costs less or more. The important thing is that you're making it. Um, mm-hmm. And the self-reliance was that there are no more imports, even if the government has to subsidize it. And mm-hmm. uh, end up being the government did subsidize it. The production was more expensive than the imports from the UK, but. There was a difference of opinion as to what self-reliance meant, you know, in a in a post-colonial anti-imperialist economy. Um, and then you know, to take to go back to oil, there's the oil case in Angola, in which you have precisely the opposite story, right? Where you end up with Cuban soldiers defending Gulf oil installations, which are feeding you know the MPLA war effort against American armed guerrillas, right? Because I mean, the American oil company is now making money that's supporting the communist government, and so the Cubans have to defend it from the United States.
0: Okay, you mentioned Cuba, which is a perfect segue. So in the book, you say that you don't focus on Cuba and Vietnam specifically, but if you just kind of run a search through Cuba listings, <laughs> they're all over the book, either direct quotes, I mean, directly in the text, or in the footnotes. Um, I remember when Fidel Castro passed away. Uh, I have a buddy in South Africa, and he changed his WhatsApp Avatar to Fidel. And I was like, "What? what what's going on here? Like, I, I, I had no idea about the history. Um, what? How should we, I know you don't focus on them per se in the book, but they have a huge role. They're all, all these connections to Cuba through all this time period. How should we think about Cuba uh, through this? Because it's not like there's some insignificant player in all of this.
2: No, they're not insignificant at all. Um, and the reason Cuba shows up in the book as much as it does, um, I didn't, essentially, if you think about the book, right, there are, you know, sort of, second world powers trying to um seed socialism and spread it around the world and then there are you know um countries in the so-called third world that are you know experimenting with versions of socialism and so i essentially classified cuba with the first group that like cuba's one of those that's trying to export it rather than you know one of those that's trying to because you know the story of cuban-soviet relations is a very complicated story in its own right which i discussed in some in my first book Um, But at the end of the day, right, Cuba does sort of adhere much closer to the Soviet path, certainly by the 1970s. Um, And so to me, that's interesting in terms of a a trial and error story. Um, But the scale of Cuban involvement in, you know, in in the the global south um, is enormous. So this is an island, right, of maybe a population of 8 million people in 1975. Between 1975 and 1991, something like roughly half a million Cubans serve in Angola as soldiers. So, I mean, just do the math, right? And you have, you know, 8 million people, half of them are women, many of them are minors. This is an enormous percentage of the adult male population, um, who all go as volunteers, by the way. Nobody is officially sent there. They're all volunteers. Nobody talks about their service. Um, They're not supposed to, at least. Um, But this is, you know, you try to think about, um, imagine, you know, an American deployment overseas on this scale. It's really, it's unfathomable. Um, and this is a very poor country, so the amount of resources it takes to to sustain this, right, are incredible. So, um, you know, Cuba punches far above its weight in terms of, you know, its its role in this um, kind of, you know, global attempt to um, both seed and then mold socialism around the world. So what should we take from that
0: because you have the Angola and, the, and they're obviously South Africa and they're, they're all over the place. Russia, you mentioned, what should we take from that? Cause we look at them today and I would be stunned if someone wrote a book saying that they have that influence today. Um, they're, you know, basically a impoverished state. That's just, you know, down there. Should we, is, is there, is there a lesson to be learned from as small as they were as much as they punched above their weight, it still didn't get them over.
2: Well, it, I mean, so the question is exactly what is Cuba trying to achieve? Um, and you know the the idealism of the Cuban leadership, the revolutionary leadership, right, is really hard to underestimate. Um, you just look at the Cuban missile crisis, and Castro and Che Guevara were furious at Khrushchev for removing the missiles um, without consulting them. They were more than willing to fight World War III to keep the missiles in Cuba, even though they understood that, that would mean the absolute destruction of of, of the Cuban people. Um, they were more militant on that, you know, on that scale than Khrushchev himself was. So, um, you know, do not underestimate the revolutionary dedication of the Cuban leadership. Um, now, it also served their purpose to a certain degree because, you know, it kept the United States' attention devoted um, elsewhere in the world. Um, but you still think about the uh, the prestige that Cuban leadership still has in parts of Latin America. Um, you know, the appeal it had when Hugo Chavez was president of Venezuela. We're now seeing. A uh and Hugo Chavez had his own um acolytes in Ava Morales in Bolivia, um, you know, Eduardo Correa in, in, in Ecuador. Um, we're seeing a new wave of left-leaning Latin American leaders who are not, you know, not copies of Hugo Chavez and certainly not copies of Fidel Castro. Um, but the prestige of someone like Castro, who was able to stand up the United States for so long um in Latin America, um, I think you know, still hasn't really died. Um, and so in that sense, it's I think it's not seen; it's it, it hasn't disappeared from from Latin American consciousness, and I think it's not necessarily seen as a waste either by others on the left in Latin America or even by the Cuban people, um, who still take a great deal of pride in you know kind of the country's independence, um, even if they want to move away from the current economic system. And so,
0: yeah, that 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 may be it because um, you know South Africa obviously is a lot different now than when they were dealing with Castro, uh, but it's still it's it's not a you know wild west libertarian state <laughs> so you still kind of have that thought process so maybe that's part of why we haven't seen uh as much of a separation is because if these co- if these countries were to be more uh, western style democracy just to use the term and kind of abandon that socialistic communistic mindset they would probably push back against some of that mentality so that's that's probably more of what's lingering on there is kind of that old old guard connection if you will but if they were to switch political philosophies they'd probably have to abandon that i'd, I'd imagine
2: well, yes and no. I mean, I think part of the argument of the book is that, you know, the Cold War ends in Eastern Europe. Um, and, you know, certainly the, the Warsaw Pact countries, you know, join the EU, join NATO, embrace, um, you know, 90s style capitalism. Russia sort of does it. Um, I think, you know, what where Putin is right now and where Russia has gone is an entirely, you know, different conversation. Um, but it was definitely a mistake to see that, you know, Communism had necessarily been completely discredited or fallen around the world. Um, I think people who believed that, you know, that China um, was now basically just a capitalist country with a communist party, um, which is what some people thought in the 80s and 90s. I think those people have, you know, changed their tune since. Um, and you know, I, I have a I have a colleague, Meg Rithmeyer, who's written who's writing about what she calls party state capitalism, which is different than state capitalism, but um, it's sort of a new model that China's developing. But it's you know, it's a model China's developing precisely because you know, they believe in certain socialist ideals and want to maintain the control of the party um, over the economy. And that's more important to them than for, you know, absolute economic growth, for example, Um, or, you know, liberalization of their markets or liberalization of their currency. Um, And so with that, I think kind of the moment in which um, a lot of, you know, developing world countries that had embraced socialism would shift to, what was called in the 90s, the Washington Consensus, right? What, What the Eastern Europeans did in shock therapy, I think that moment is really gone. Um, and so, you know, if a country like, you know, Cuba wants to move away from its old economic system, it's looking more towards China or towards other examples of, you know, how you have, you know, sort of a hybrid economy, how you maintain a role for the state, you know, and, and the party in both politics and the economy um, in a way they wouldn't have necessarily in the 1990s. Um, so Africa is very interesting in that sense because Africa becomes independent, you know, right at this moment. Um, not, well, not independent, but at least, you know, the apartheid regime falls right at this moment, 1994. I think if South Africa had become independent in 1975, the ANC probably would have tried to follow, you know, MPLA or FRELIMO multi policies. If the ANC had instead taken over, you know, in let's say after 2008, um, it might have also tried, you know, more status policies. Um, so that was an interesting question because you know the ANC takes takes power right at the height of sort of the Washington Consensus moment.
0: Yeah, and I do think we're we're in this kind of this quasi period. You talk about China there, um, you know they did open up, um, you know, and, and then when the, what they saw was massive economic growth. They benefited from that, uh, but with massive economic growth came people complaining about the government openly because they had a lot of money, uh, and so now they're trying to tighten back down. And so I, I think that that's the the needle that these countries are trying to thread. I, I can't see. How you can be successful in doing that—that that seems to be kind of the the old guard model was probably more effective because you kind of kept everything clamped down. But once you start to open up, and I think that's what China's realized is that that the cat gets out of the bag, and it's really hard to rein it back in.
2: Well, I mean, I think I think for the Chinese is very much an open question. Um, I think you know I think there are certain assumptions about how things have to work in terms of political economy that are based on what historically is not really a very long track record. You know, we're talking, for the most part, really about the last 150 years, and in circle terms, 150 years is not a really long time. Um, And so, you know, I mean, China grew really fast in the beginning, but it grew really fast from a very, very small base. So it was easy to have, you know, fast growth. And a lot of, you know, what was wealth in 1989 in China would be considered utter poverty today. Um, But at the same time, right, the Chinese Communist Party has 95 million members. And a lot of the way China works, right, is through what we might call crony capitalism, right? So you're part of a system um, and the system benefits all. And so if you're one of those 95 million party members, right, you benefit in certain ways from the fact that your party's in charge and your party controls everything. Um, And so you have stakes in the system staying as it is. And, you know, if you have 95 million people who are, probably, you know, the most educated, most ambitious, most upwardly mobile coastal dwelling element of your population, Um, that's a pretty good constituency. Um, And, you know, they have a stake in the system maintaining itself. So, um, you know, I'm not not saying the Chinese regime is, you know, stable for all time. Um, But I think, you know, kind of people waiting for, um, you know, the Jack Ma's of the world to sort of, you know, overthrow the regime might be waiting a long time.
0: Yeah, one thing for you hop in here, Dr. Walt, episode 53 of Inside the War Room, we have on Desmond Shum with the author of Red Roulette, who is an escaped Chinese billionaire and kind of unpacks some of the stuff. So if listeners want to go check that out, uh, I'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Um, yeah, I was, I'm curious now, you know, how you see some of the, um, you know, China's current um, activities, economic activities in Africa and Iran in light of, you um, in light of, of, this, of this book and of the you know, ideas about kind of internet of, of socialism in, in the third world? Are, are they still you know, combining these, these, this economic development with an ideology or is it mostly just like we wanna make money?
2: Well, so one of the things I think that's interesting um, that I found in my research is that, you know if you look at um, you know, American foreign policy discussions at the time in the 1960s, the impression was that the Chinese were far more ideological than the Soviets. Um, I think I found the opposite to be the case. The Soviets were generally far more interested in socialism, per se, and the Chinese were interested in um, you know, what would benefit them politically. So they were much less interested in you know, imposing a socialist model than um, you know, building alliances, reducing American influence, um, gaining security. So I think even then, um, Chinese foreign policy was, I think, less focused on you know, the propagation of an ideological model than, the Soviet, than Soviet foreign policy was, which is not how the U.S. saw it at the time. And I think there's more continuity, has been more continuity in Chinese foreign policy in the 60s and today than I think people usually give it credit for. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Chinese line for a, for a long time was that, you know, we just do business. We don't we don't attach political conditions the way the West does. Um, we're just interested in making money. Um, and I don't think that's completely true. I think if you look at things they've done in places like Angola, for example, um, you know, China just like Russia has been afraid of you know, color type revolutions and the Arab Spring and such, and um, can't afford to live in a world in which you know, they're the only non-democracy. And you know, it becomes a kind of default expectation that you know, every country as it modernizes, as it grows, will become you know, a multi-party electoral democracy um, because that means the death of the Communist Party. Um, and so you know, they, have, they have therefore an incentive to preserve kind of single party regimes to preserve you know, hybrid economic models. Um, and there are a lot of those in Southern Africa, you know, Angola is, is, is one. Um, and so I think you know, they, they, they do realize that they have this incentive to um, maintain a viable alternative to kind of you know, Western multi party democracy, market economics. Um, and I think that hasn't really gone away. What's interesting now is that um, Chinese foreign policy and Chinese foreign investment is actually less active now in certain ways than it was you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, the amount of money being invested in the Belt and Road, for example, is much less than it was in 2016. And in part that's because of domestic economic difficulties, right? That China needs that money at home and is overleveraged. Um, uh, not to mention the fact, of course, that their their actual domestic labor supply is shrinking, not growing. Um, so, you know, the ability to do what they plan to do in foreign policy five, 10 years ago might not quite be the same, you know, the same way. Um, and plus, you know, we should never, both in the 1960s and I think in the 2010s, there's a lot of discourse around. Um, the way, you know, that Africans or Asians would be sort of misled by the Chinese. And I think one lesson from the research is never under, underestimate the sophistication of, you know, anyone else's government. Um, they're not easily misled by either the Chinese or the Americans or the Europeans or the Russians.
0: Yeah, real quick, I'll, I'll hop back in after this, but you mentioned the kind of the ideological differences between the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. China's civilian army talks about the ascent of their uh, geopolitical, um, stuff it, it, it i'm always skeptical that any of these communists believe this <laughs> i always feel like it's a lot more of just a pure power grab and we're gonna we're gonna posture it in a way that might be more pure communism it might be more pure socialism to use those terms um but you know at the end of the day it's more of a power grab than it is some fundamental belief that these economic systems work. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't people in the world who believe these things. I'm talking about the, the, the ones who ascribe uh, to take the power are far more inter- inter- interested in the power than they are the system itself.
2: So um, my PhD advisor, Stephen Kotkin um, at Princeton, always liked to say that um, the greatest discovery um, that historians made after uh, the Soviet archives finally opened, you know, the entire Cold War, people have been studying the USSR wondering, you know, what the archives would say if they ever got a chance to see them. You know, what do they say inside the Politburo? And there had been this great debate in the 1970s, uh, 1980s between revisionists and totalitarians about, you know, you know, could the system be reformed and such. Um, and you know, Kotkin says the greatest discovery that people made in the open archives is that it turned out the communists were actually communists. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everybody imagined what you were saying, right? That oh, they talk about this stuff in public, but behind closed doors, they know it's all nonsense, right? And it turns out that no matter how deep you dig, right, no matter how secret the room. All the documents you can find sound the same, right? They're talking about inside the Politburo, inside the KGB, in the secret meetings, they're talking about the same, you know, Marxist-Leninist ideas. Um, and so you know, if you want to believe, you want to still hold on to that idea that you know, somehow they don't really believe this, right? There's there's no evidence for it. And you have to really imagine that somehow. You know, you okay. Can- okay, you're you're <laughs> the doctor here. You're the. I'll, I'll 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 concede. I didn't know people
0: were just that stupid at the highest levels. I mean, I know they're dumb, but I didn't know they're that well, dumb.
2: Okay. <laughs> but here's but here's what I would say. So in so in the book, um, I I define ideology as a systematically simplified way of understanding reality that facilitates judgment and action. Um, and I think if you look at ideology that way, you know it. You understand, first of all, everybody has to have some sort of ideology. Sure. Um, some people can articulate it and some people can't, and some people absorbed it. But mm-hmm. the point is, you know, reality itself is so complicated that if we attempted to absorb all the information coming at you through reality at the same time, you'd be paralyzed. Um, you have to figure out a way, some way to sort, you know, what matters and what doesn't, and what causes this, and, you know, what should I concentrate on? Um, And so what ideology does is it helps you do this, right, it helps you sort of swim through the sea of reality and pick out the points to sort of guide yourself along the way. Um, And given that, right, it's not so hard to imagine, you know, if you break down, you know, socialism or Marxism into, you know, its basic ideological points that people can see these as their basic load stars. And this is how you navigate by it doesn't necessarily mean, right, as I said before, that, you know, you have to go like the only way to to grow an economy is to have a centrally planned economy with a five year plan and you know sort of the way Stalin did. It. Um, but um, that you navigate by certain ideological lodestars, I think I think it shouldn't be that difficult to imagine. And I, I you know I I wouldn't make the argument that Xi Jinping doesn't do that.
0: Well yeah, you mentioned China, what struck me is if you go back and read about some of the stuff that Mao did, he did it to distract from the fact that the people were starving, they you know this this wasn't working and so he would he would reshift what was happening um and so that that would be more of what I'm saying like he you know he knew that he needed to keep power and so hey, let's go bomb Taiwan or you know, let's roll out the great leap forward or, or whatever. And so if you're saying the Russians believed it, I believe you you are the you are the expert here. It just it just seems that that would be the case, but Hey, listen. I've been wrong on this podcast one time before, so this is the second time. So, okay, Ellen, I said come back in, so come back in because the doctor's—he's proven me wrong. So I got to be quiet now.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think it's a very good point about about the role of of ideology, and that's something that. Um, you know and people are constantly asking oh are these demonstrations going to finally be like the next you know Iranian revolution and I always say well you know you, you never really see it coming you know they they didn't see the first one coming and in hindsight it looked like pretty obvious you know if you go back and you look at all of the things that had to you know that, that took place over the years you could see it coming but obviously in the moment um, no one at least in the west did but um you know I always see like there's there's a lack of, of like an ideology is lacking and you need that for some kind of a a revolution. And so it's not surprising that, you know, these people either actually believed it or were just so steeped in it that that's the lens through which they viewed basically everything. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's not so surprising. I guess the question that a lot of people think is like, why has the Iranian regime's ideology managed to hold on for so long? Or is it is it has it waned at least amongst the people and it's just kind of being held on by the guys at the top? Um, you know, where where is this going? Is there a potential for reform or some kind of counter-revolution? Or is this just, you know, are we stuck with it?
2: I mean, I think it's an interesting question, one that I've thought about a lot. And I think, you know, there are at least two answers um, which you know, I sort of give a pragmatic one and ideological one, which kind of contradicts what I was saying. They can be, you know, separated. But I think I think that you know one has to sort of figure out, you know, where the next of these two things is. And I think so. One one way to think about revolutions, this is the way I think about revolutions, um, is that when people tend to to write about revolutions or read about them or you know, report on them, you know, it's the most exciting thing about the revolution is the people in the streets, right? You know, it's it's exciting to be in the crowds outside, you know, the Berlin, you know, the Brandenburg Gate in November 1989 or you know, Tiananmen Square, right? Even you know, Tehran in two thousand nine, um, and that you know, those make for the best pictures and the best you know headlines in the New York Times. Um, but you know, there were way more people in Tiananmen Square than anywhere in Eastern Europe in nineteen eighty nine, and that regime didn't fall. Um, and there were way more there were more people in Tehran in two thousand nine in the streets than in Tiananmen Square in nineteen eighty nine. Um, and so I think you know, instead of looking at the protesters, look at the regime. Um, you know. I think, you know, what are the, look at the regime and say, what are the incentives to the people inside the regime? Um, you know, do they have an incentive to abandon the regime, or do they have an incentive to fight back? Where are they better off? Um, and so I think you know, if you look at the incentives for, let's say, the Revolutionary Guards in 2009 in Tehran, right, they have you know, financial incentives to maintain the regime. Um, they have you know, certainly a great deal of fear about what might happen to them if the regime falls. They could not only lose their money; they could, you know, be imprisoned, lose their lives, and such. Um, you know, a lot of the the communists in Eastern Europe in 1989, they just turned around, renamed their parties, and ran as Democrats. You know, in elections one or two years later. Um, so, and and many of them had already stolen enough money and hidden in Swiss bank accounts; they would be wealthy when you know the new economy you know came around um, in the 1990s. So, I think you know it's important to look at the incentives that people inside the regime. Um, and you know, I think the Iranian regime, if it if it were to fall, will fall when the people inside the regime who have power no longer have an incentive to hold on to the regime. Um, it's not going to fall when there are enough people in the streets to push them out. Um, so I think I think you know that's that's one thing I would say is is look at the regime, don't just look at the protesters. Um, the second thing I would say is that, and I thought about this a lot, is what are the differences between a revolutionary regime built on Marxism and one built on Islamism? Because at the end of the day, right, Marx was a, a person who made you know, certain kinds of truth claims, um, who made certain kinds of analyses, um, and people can come to the conclusion those analyses are wrong, right? Um, and not just Marx, but you know, Lenin and Stalin and you know, anyone else afterwards and say, well, look, communism was supposed to provide this sort of society and this sort of economy, and it doesn't, so therefore, it's wrong, we can get rid of it. Um, it's falsifiable in a way that Islam is not really falsifiable because it's a religion. Um, right? So it's hard to reject You can reject versions of Islam. You can reject political applications of Islam. Um, but all of Islam, per se, can't really be discredited. Um, and because of that, um, I think you know, there's, there's always more room for reformism in the Iranian Revolution, a different version of how one incorporates Islam in politics. Um, and therefore a gradual transition. And of course, I mean, as as you all know, right, in many ways, the Iranian regime has, you know, the institutions and mechanisms of democracy already in place, it doesn't necessarily use them properly. Um, But you know, if you reduce the role of the Guardian Council inside, right, it's a very different kind of regime. And, you know, it can be it can be reformed, therefore, in a way that the Soviet system could not have, you know, the Chinese system can't be. Um, And I think that goes along with the fact that it has this sort of, Know non-falsifiable core at the center of its ideology.
0: Okay. I know we are getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, we've touched on the book. This book is 340 pages, I think, long, 60 pages. It's it's uh, not a short one. That's not a long one either. But, um, but that being said, we didn't cover uh, all of it. So what is maybe the favorite part of the book that we didn't cover or one thing that you want to highlight for people um, that are getting ready to read this book?
2: I mean, I think, I think we've done a good job of covering all the things or many of the things that I think, um, you know, I really want people to take away, I think, you know, as as a history nerd and as an ideology nerd, some of the points that I really like um, are, you know, the ways in which, you know, like you can point to the the way big ideological discussions have very, very practical um, political implications. Because I think, you know, people tend to imagine that like, you know, ideology is sort of discussions in the clouds, you know, kind of like Thomas Aquinas or whatever's glasses and discussing how many angels would dance on the head of a pin. And it doesn't really, when you talk about practical politics, something else. Um, and so, for example, in the, in the Chile chapter, um, the, the the communists and the socialists have two different ideas supposed to be. The communists believe, you know, that we have to, you know, gradually win over the middle classes, build an electoral majority, and sort of institutionalize the revolution that way over time. And the socialists believe that no, we're going to have, you know, an all-out clash between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And so we have to mobilize our people and arm them as quickly as possible because there's going to be a civil war. Right? We're not. Maintain this through elections, Um, and so when it comes to land reform, and this is the most basic question in a country that is predominantly agricultural. So the the communists want to um, the the communists want to uh, uh, nationalize or or redistribute um, land holdings that are uh, below um, that are above eighty hectares, um, and the socialists want to nationalize those above forty hectares. Why? Because above eighty hectares, those are only the big landlords. So you get the middle peasants, you get the middle classes on your side. And the socialists, well, they think, you know, we can alienate the middle classes. What we want to do, right, is get the poor on our side, right, the poor peasants. And so it literally comes down to how big of a plot of land do you think needs to be nationalized? In terms of how many stages do you believe the revolution has? Um, so it has, you know, that's, as a history nerd, that's the kind of stuff that I love. The way, you know, ideology gets, gets you know, has its implications for, you know, the number of, of, of acres you're allowed to hold.
0: Okay. I know this book just came out on January 4th, but I have to ask you, when does the next one drop? That's, <laughs>
2: there's 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 too many questions you know there might be uh, i have to see if i get tenure there might be children there, you know, there's covid like too many <laughs> okay no no book on the horizon though uh hopefully the sooner the better that's all i can say
0: okay all right well we look forward to um getting you on again hopefully you won't disprove me next time we'll try to do better on that one but no it was great uh where do you want to send people to obviously to buy the book but anywhere
2: else Um, I think, yeah, buy the book. The book's available on Amazon. It's available through Harvard University Press. Um, And yeah, um, go buy the book, please.
0: Okay. Well, Jeremy, it was lovely to have you on again. Thank you and look forward to talking to you hopefully when your next book comes out. Thanks a lot. It was great to be here.